everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. My name is Hitzir. I'm Hadi. Uh, this month, we are without our co-host, Isa Fung, who is uh, experiencing some technical difficulties. He will be back soon, however, next month for our Behold episodes in Genre Equality. Uh, he's not off the show or anything, just, you know, problems with his mic uh, cropped up. Quite unexpectedly, you know how those Windows updates go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we will endeavor to carry on without him here on General Equality Fifty Nine. So much to talk about that you know we just didn't want to. We don't want to wait lah until he figured out his shit. You know yeah. he can join us next month. But we're here to talk about lots of stuff, including a bunch of big titles, season one, big shows coming out. A- absolutely, you know, uh, big franchises. Um, two fantasy prequels. Mm-hmm. Uh, competing against each other at the same time oh. on HBO and Amazon Prime, respectively. House of the Dragon Season 1, just recently wrapped up today as of this recording. Uh, Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, also wrapped up on awesome. Amazon Prime quite recently, uh, alongside other things like She-Hulk, mm. Attorney at Law, Rick and Morty, Season 6. Let's go. Uh, Hardy will be uh, reviewing the one major superhero blockbuster out in cinemas right now. Let's go. Uh, the return of the DCEU. Mm-hmm. Uh, Black Adam. Uh, the most electrifying anti-hero in <laughs> entertainment. Yeah. Uh, it's here. Uh, plus, I'll be doing solo reviews of Star Wars Tales of the Jedi. Hardy will join me to talk about Star Trek Lower Decks Season 3. Um, I'll be talking about Lost Spookies Season 2. Plus, uh, I'll be delivering pretty mediocre reviews for things like Halloween Ends, mm-hmm. uh, Hellraiser, uh, The Midnight Club. Uh, and, but there's some, some fun stuff here and there as well. Uh, short things, you know, like uh, Wendell and Wild is good on Netflix. Werewolf by Night, uh, a new Marvel one-off feature out on Disney Plus right now is actually pretty, pretty good. Uh, alongside Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosity. So, if there's a giant theme around this episode, it's horror, yes. uh, to be honest, d- despite the, the our main topics being fantasy and superheroes. La. Because it is Halloween season, so a lot of horror stuff out right now. Not all of them good, but some of them are. Uh, let's begin, though, with She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. Let's go. Uh, in the MCU's latest Disney Plus series, mm-hmm. Attorney Jennifer Walters, uh, played by Often Black's Tatiana Maslany, mm-hmm. uh, who is the cousin to Mark Ruffalo's Hulk, attempts to juggle superhuman legal cases, dating, and the fact that she transform, transforms into this six foot seven inch green hulk uh, when she experiences fear or anger. Um, this show attempts to be a mix of uh, Fleabag and Ellie McBeal. Mm. Um, and She-Hulk is unique, unique in the MCU in that this is the franchise's first pure sitcom. Mm. Uh, not meta sitcom like WandaVision, but a real honest-to-goodness, cheesy, situational comedy. Uh, in, in the comics, this was already the case. Uh, for those unfamiliar, She-Hulk is a Hulk mm-hmm. who retains her own personality even when powered up. She is a lawyer whose specialty is cases involving other superheroes, uh, where most of her peers tend to treat their heroic identities as necessary evils they'd rather do without. Uh, she loves or at least comes to love being the stronger, more confident, more glamorous She-Hulk and resents having to turn back to normal. That is the story in the comics. And most importantly, she has largely been written as a comedy-forward character. Not a drama-forward character, a comedy-centric character has always been 
Uh, and this is unique in a very dark and angst-ridden medium, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, she frequently breaks the fourth wall to address her readers and acknowledge that she's in a comic book. Yeah. Uh, and she's been doing this years before. and years and years before Deadpool made that his gimmick. Yep. Uh, this is a clear case of gimmick infringement here. She-Hulk <laughs> did it first. So a lot of people who have been like, hey, She-Hulk is just like, you know, like Deadpool. It's not the case. She was doing this first. Yep. Um, so how does the show work in adaptation? Uh, what do you think about She-Hulk, Hardy? Okay. Honestly, I was a bit, I was a bit apprehensive at first. Just because of the mm. trailer and there was some, you know, janky CGI during the trailer. Yep. So, yep. And then I, I was also a bit worried about, you know how Wokinism has kind of taken over certain segments of American society and all that. Mm. So I was afraid of that kind of overhanded kind of like, you know, w- woman can do this and you know, woman can do this just as well as men. You know, that kind of weird, um, on the nose kind of uh, politics like that kind of enter into your your TV shows. Mm. Well, it didn't. It it was actually done in a very tasteful way. I felt. Uh. Yep. Uh, a lot of it actually, you know, from her trying to find her clothes, you know, from her mm. uh, trying to figure out her career now that, you know, she's a Hulk and a very visible Hulk, and I know uh, where she's always seemed to be in the public eye all the time. Uh, mm. All the issues that she had to deal with is something that the other superheroes kind of never have to figure out, you know, mm. where they're, they're, they're public and they're... they're superhero persona and their personal life is meshed really um, closely together just because of the mm. scrutiny of social media the scrutiny of the media itself you know and mm. just everybody around her you know yep yeah and and Tatia Maslani's uh, portrayal of uh, of She-Hulk I think it's uh, top notch uh, yep. I think she does a really good job uh, in, in getting that from that petite, sweet, uh, harmless person, you know, mm. who growing and Jennifer Walters like, her, her 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 whole journey as well. Tatiana Maslany yep. really does very well in in um in portraying all these changes that uh, Jennifer Walters goes through because of you know her persona of the She-Hulk. Mm. Yeah, so I think uh, I think it's a, I think I really enjoyed this series. Um, yeah. and there was a lot of um, because if you go online, Rotten Tomatoes, for example, you know you can see the review bombing and all that. Of course, like that's an insane amount of review bombing that that, that she helped, uh, had to go through, and I feel that it's unwarranted, la. Like, uh, it happened with um, Turning Red. It happened with Miss Marvel. Yeah. You know, it, it it just happens like if you have you know someone different, yeah, in uh, 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 as the lead character in a particularly like white centric franchise like the MCU, yeah, um, the core fan base will feel that they're not being represented, which is hilarious. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it it's just the way of the world these yeah, days. Exactly, though. and I really enjoyed the last episode that. Mm. that that kind of uh, meta comedy humor that uh, she, she does well uh, throughout the, you know, and it really culminates to the last episode itself. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, so yeah. Yeah, I think it was well done. Also. Yep. Um, on the downside though, um, sure. the comedy and CGI, com- uh, both comedy and CGI are sometimes, sometimes, sometimes spotty, yes. uh, which presents a problem <laughs> because this is a comedy about a CGI character. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, however, I think Bishul's self-aware sensibility and 
feminist humor and Maslani's performance do a lot to smooth out mm-hmm. the rough patches in the beginning. Uh, in fact, the show does get better as it goes along. And I think, historically, sitcoms in particular have a harder time finding their footing than dramas. Uh, think of The Office or Cheers or Parks and Recreation or The Simpsons, which took multiple seasons to find its vibe. Uh, and to be fair to She-Hulk, it does seem to be finding its groove as it goes along further into it. Yeah. Um, you know, its final episodes with uh, whether it be Daredevil sex or <laughs> She-Hulk uh, confronting um, Kevin Feige, who, spoiler, it turns out to be a sentient AI uh, crafting the MCU <laughs> via algorithms, which actually makes sense, uh, was great. Um, She-Hulk literally climbing out of Disney Plus to confront her writer's room That's great. Uh, and, you know, and smash MCU's worst tropes, also satisfying. Um, I'm glad that you brought up the, the review bombing and everything that, that, that's been thrown at She-Hulk mm-hmm. uh, lately because, hey, as it turns out, the show's main villains are exactly the sexist, stupid, insecure man-children yeah. who were re- review bombing the show before even the first episode aired. They felt it. Um, they felt it when they watched it. The, the writers did a great job, not just feeling it, but foreseeing yeah. the inevitable backlash and trolling from this particular toxic corner of fandom. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of bumping this up from a 6 to a 7, uh, just because of uh, Madison, uh, two ends, oh, one wire, but it's not what you think. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would have given it a bit more, but like, The Sopranos is a very important show for me, and I realized that her spoiling The Sopranos was a running gag. Oh, yes, but it was. man, it hurt. It hurt me <laughs> quite a bit, especially for Wong. <laughs> especially for Wong, yeah. yeah, yeah. He was looking forward to the the finale. I know with uh it, the thing with Adriana, which I was about to spoil also, but <laughs> then talking about it like and, and everything. But yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, medicine is great. I would. Have drinks and watch The Sopranos before any time. Yeah. So yeah, it's it, it, she bumped it up from a six to a seven for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about you? How, how uh, final thoughts in your rating? Uh, well? yeah, I'll give it a seven point five. Um, okay. I, again, I really enjoyed the show. I have very little issues with it. Uh, great cameos. Uh, throughout, I like that mm. they also even like uh kind of said like you know this show is not just about the cameos. Yeah, you know, um, uh, self awareness is something that I like. Uh, mm. And so another thing is so so yeah the Daredevil cameo I think was very very well paid off lah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, definitely. I mean, uh, as She Hulk herself mentions in her meeting with Kevin Feige lah, like the the whole sex quotient in the MCU is something that has been historically <laughs> underrepresented, <laughs> and I I like that you know superheroes can get down. It's cool, yeah. you know, it happens. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so seven point five for you, seven, seven out of ten yeah. for me. Um, not the greatest show in the world. It's nah, not gonna nah, be a nah. world beater or anything, but uh, it. I think it's a pleasant enough uh pastime. Yeah. To, uh, something to watch, you know, to kill the time. It's it's okay. It's nowhere near as good or as bad as its supporters or detractors make okay. it out to be. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes the truth kind of lies in the middle, okay. and you have to look beyond the kind of internet debate mm-hmm. because. A lot of internet debate is not in good faith. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you just have to kind of ignore that and watch it for what it is. And yeah. I thought it was fine. Yeah. Perfectly fine show. Yeah. Uh, next up, let's go to our first fantasy prequel. Oh. Uh, let's talk about House of the Dragon. Oh. HBO's new prequel series takes place roughly two centuries before the events of Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Targaryen dynasty has successfully ruled Westeros for a long time mm-hmm. uh, with the family's army of fire-breathing dragons helping maintain order within a kingdom that as we saw on GOT, could very easily fracture otherwise. What did you think of season one of House of the Dragon? Okay, so you know that 
I read books like a long time ago, right? Oh uh, yes, yes, of so course. This is this is under the Fire and Blood, which is actually a history of the Targaryen family, and this is just yes. one part of the book. Uh, yes, but it's still like sixty six thousand words, lah. So, close yeah. to HBO, okay. I honestly I couldn't give a shit about this series, as it was being marketed to me as it was you know as as it was uh, mm. coming up. I didn't really give a shit like just because of the it was, you know because correct, of correct. it was be yeah and it was being marketed as Succession, which there is obviously a, a better Succession already on HBO. Like, it, it's it's called Succession, exactly. but. When you're watching it, it turns out it's not Succession. It's, it's not. actually The Crown. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, could continue. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Uh, so, yeah. again, so because I read the book, I kind of already know what's going to happen and all that. Yeah. The usual, you know, with, with Game of Thrones also, up to a point, I also knew what was going to happen. So, to me, that's not a big deal. But I loved how how they kept most of the book. Uh, mm. They actually uh, kept most of uh, what the book re- written and, you know, Adapted it very well to the screen, mm. and it it kind of washes away a a lot of season eight and season seven for me. Mm-hmm. And and it that's good lah. I mean, it's a new story. It's a whole uh, it's a whole different landscape, you know. Um, and I was impressed with how well they 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 tied in all the politics of that day, and presented it really well. From the mm. greens to the to, you know, to the blacks, you know, and how the time jumps, right, weren't as scary as in Game of Thrones. Like, yes. I mean, there was a bit of whiplash when they went for the tenure one. There's, there's, there's a bit of a for all mankind season three, yes, season three ness in this a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but okay, then they, they 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 slowly explained everything well enough that you caught up by the time you know the the episode ends, lah. Um, mm. Uh, again, I think great acting all around. Uh, you know, from Matt Smith's portrayal of 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 Damon, right, is so well done. Mm. Like he embodies Damon so well, it's mm. so scary. Like, you know, uh, and also on his uh on his brother Viserys, I think Viserys portraying this king trying to do his best, you know, but just you can tell he's weak. You know, beautifully acted by everybody on the cast. I feel. Viserys is the most tragic yeah, character I, f- I feel in, in Game of Thrones lore. Having seen all, all of Game of Thrones and um, all of the first season of Hot D, um, Viserys is probably the king I felt for the most. Uh, the best representation of why a good man is not necessarily a good king. Yeah. yeah. A, a, um, bit of he's like, great. Uh, a bit of like a Ned Stark kind of syndrome, you know? A little bit, yeah. yeah. We, we were all discussing why Ned Stark could not possibly keep the realm together yeah. because you know he's just too good of a guy, and so is Viserys, right? He's just he just wants his family to get along. He doesn't want war. Yeah. He's not interested in conquest. The only I mean this is, yeah, yeah the only issue that I had with not not issue but rather how it was written for Viserys is that even though he has good intentions, he just makes mistakes. You see, because he's just a mm. man. You know he, how he he saw the succession and all that. Like him putting faith in Rhaenyra throughout the entire thing, even though Rhaenyra was rearing bastards and all that, like yeah, that kind of like weakness for his daughter was also mm. his downfall, uh, which will also cause that war that we'll be seeing in season two, uh. The Dance of Dragons. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um. It's it's also on the flip side tragic. I like I like that they're three dimensionally fleshing out all yes. the characters, also because it is at the same time also not Rhaenyra's fault that she's harboring bastards. It's not. 
it's because you know she married a gay dude yeah. so i mean what you gonna do right yeah. um she was doing this the way it is you know yeah yeah exactly yeah exactly agreed and uh, yeah so um i i would actually highly recommend people to watch this, this show lah. Mm. like there are no i think one-dimensional characters then, maybe with the exception of like otto hightower maybe who is a bit like caricature villainy but even um, then otto is doing his his his, his People call him like the little finger of this series. Yeah, but little finger didn't care about the realm. Exactly. He's doing he's doing this genuinely to keep the realm together yeah. because he he thinks the the realm will fracture under a female queen, not because he is misogynistic, but, he, but because he believes that the people will not, will not follow her. Yeah. yeah, you know that kind of thing. So he even even he he is quite nuanced in a sense. Yeah, um, even him. Like that is like the most one dimensional <laughs> character that I could point out like, of the main of the main cast. Like. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Agreed. Like I'm not counting like the white worm or anything because those are like side characters yeah, and you know there's only so much time that can be given to right, them. Right. But you know with Damon, with Viserys, with Rhaenyra, who that yeah uh, with Alicent who's also really great too. Alicent's um, story is really great. Like her, she is one of those very well fleshed out characters. Absolutely, you know. Like sometimes, like you 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 see everybody's point of view, yeah. uh, which is very difficult to do. Um, I sometimes root for Alison. I sometimes hate her. Sometimes she feels like a Trump supporter. Sometimes she just feels <laughs> caught in between uh, misunderstandings. You know, um, there there is almost a Shakespearean level of misunderstanding mm-hmm. going on in this show. Um, and I love that it's not just because like communication is poor. It's just like genuine misunderstandings and personal built up resentments. Uh, Damon and Viserys, for example, I don't think actually ever hated one another. Ah, no, no, no. They just they just had pent up resentments that. Because you know they're men and men don't um, communicate very well. <laughs> they don't hug enough. Uh, they don't hug enough, you know. Uh, right up until the end, yes. where when Damon helps him up the throne, yeah. which is such a, such a powerful moment mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like possibly the most brilliant moment in episode one, the, the the moment which convinced me that the writers not only read the source material but really thought about it heavily, was the scene with Damon in the brothel ah. after Balon and Emma's death. Oh, no. um, in the book, we are told that Damon and his men had a party yep. the night his nephew died, and that Damon toasted to Balon, uh, calling him heir for a day, yeah. uh, and got thrown out or ex- exiled by Viserys as a result. Yep. Now, when I read that, I took it at face value. I imagined Damon with one hand around you know, a whore, kind of shit face, mm-hmm. raising a pint mm-hmm. and cheering the fact that his baby nephew died, and he was still the heir. But the show didn't go with the obvious interpretation. No. Instead, they show us Damon just before he boasts, he toasts to Balon. He's at a party, yes, but he's not celebrating with the rest of his men. He's sitting there, solemnly drinking alone. He's not exactly heartbroken and grieving, but he's clearly not happy either. Yep. And when he steps up to raise his glass and to make the toast, it doesn't seem to me from Matt Smith's acting that you know he's about to go like, well, hey, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, exactly. uh, F- fuck off, you know, blah blah blah. You know, it seems like he's about to step up, acknowledge his nephew. He was just acknowledging that his nephew was factually F for a day, and basically acknowledging yeah. that some major shit has gone down over the last few days. He's sad about it. He's disappointed, and he lets his men go back to their partying. Yep. And then he goes back to a quiet drink. It's a very nuanced exactly. interpretation of a black and white scene. Yep. That was a moment early in episode one mm. that hundred percent convinced me that this was going to go way better than uh, the Rings of Power because 100%. I I saw that writing and I was like, man, this is genius. And they kept doing variations of like um things that we read in a history yes. book. Like we know the facts, but we don't Correct. know the motivation. Yes, I was just going to say that. Yeah. 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 
so yeah, it, in that way, it's very much like the crown, lah, which, which is kind of based around historical facts, but then the conversations behind the scenes is left up to uh, your own dramatic interpretation mm-hmm, or mm-hmm, creative mm-hmm. interpretation. And the interpretations that these shows writers took yeah. convinced me very, very, very early on that they were a lot more thoughtful than, give a shit, uh, Benny, uh, than, than Benny Hoff and Weiss. Yeah, because they were on the way out. They were going to do other things and all that, you know, Star Wars and shit, which they got fired yeah. from. So Yeah. Yeah, thank, uh, this was done by... Uh, but George R. R. Martin had a uh, a part in this also, right? With, like, he worked with uh, Condell and Miguel, right? Yep, Miguel Sapochik. Yeah, so yeah, la, I mean, you can tell la, that, that, that there was a, there was a great love for the project. La. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brilliant. La. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give it... I mean, can we do our ratings? Uh, yeah, let's do it. Um, I'm giving this an 8 out of 10. Mm, I'll give it an 8.5. Okay. Yeah. Fair, fair, fair yeah. rating. Uh, yeah, House of the Dragon. Go catch it. Um, it's available on HBO Go if you have not seen the first season, or HBO Max if you live in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, go rewatch it. I think if you have if you have been left with the bad taste in your mouth by season seven or eight or game of yeah, definitely this will wash it out. If you are not into fantasy shows because you picked Rings of Power over Hot D, I think you made the wrong choice. <laughs> uh, Hot D, Hot D is way better than Rings of Power. Hell yeah. Uh, we'll get into that in a couple of topics for now, but man, um, yeah, this was this was the clear winner of the fantasy prequels. Yep. Very, very clear winner. Uh, not the best show in the world no. or anything, but when you're competing with utter garbage like Rings of Power, when you're competing with the memory of season 8 of Game of Thrones, yeah. uh, I would even say that, you know, like, those are the kind of like, you know, if you're an up-and-coming boxer, like, your first two fights will be like Jobbers, you know, and... <laughs> Rings of Power and Game of Thrones Season 8 are like the jobbers. Mm-hmm. But the real step up in competition is when you compare Hot D Season 1 with GOT Season 1. And I think they're comparable. Yeah, they are. Yeah, I think they're about on the same level. Yeah. Uh, I think Hot D might even be slightly better. Um, Just because they kind of already know what to do. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, um, I, I think this was a win for HBO. Same. Agreed. Definitely. Uh, let's move on to Rick and Morty hey. Season 6. Uh, hot damn, it looks like Rick and Morty is uh, back on form after a couple of weirdly meh seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, season 6 does everything we wanted it to do. Yeah. It gets us invested emotionally, uh, gives its characters deeper arcs, and addresses continuity, all while giving us creative, high-concept, episodic sci-fi adventures. The show has finally found its balance, I think, and it has reinvigorated my interest in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, uh, the fifth season finale of Rick and Morty concluded with a game-changing scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, in an episode titled Rick Murai Jack, we saw the return of Evil Morty and the Citadel of Ricks, mm-hmm. uh, both of which were introduced all the way back in the first season in uh, Close Recounters of the Rick Kind. Yep. Uh, Evil Morty took over the Citadel of Ricks in the Season 3 episode, The Rick Lantis Mix-Up. Mm-hmm. And in the fifth season finale, Evil Morty revealed that in the multiverse, as we've experienced it in Rick and Morty thus far, is not as expensive as we think. Uh, instead, the various universes that Rick and Morty uh, have visited throughout the first five seasons were only those that exist within a barrier referred to as the central infinite curve, mm-hmm. or as Evil Morty described it, described it, one infinite crib around an infinite fucking baby. Um, it was Rick's way of controlling his own world after losing his wife Diane and his daughter Beth at the hands of another portal-traveling Rick from the future, whom he has vowed to chase across the multiverse with the hopes of killing him. Mm-hmm. Like almost everything Rick has done, it was created in an effort to keep himself distracted from confronting the pain that he's never properly dealt with. Yeah. 
evil Morty has had enough, and he used the Citadel of Ricks as well as all the Ricks and Mortys within it uh, to power and escape into a larger multiverse where there are no barriers created by Rick. Uh, what's more is that evil Morty has rendered Rick's portal gun useless, yep. leaving Rick and Morty to die on the crumbling Citadel. All this is to remind you of what has happened before we kick off Season 6, which gives us the most direct continuation of a serial storyline uh, in a very, very long time. Uh, however, just because Season 6 digs deep into canonical storytelling doesn't mean that this season abandons the Adventure of the Week formula yeah. that makes the series so fun. Uh, without getting into any spoilers, these latest episodes offer the best of both worlds, a growing serial storyline, Mixed, mixed in with one-off adventures here and there. And I think after six seasons, it's good to report that Ray and Morty is now letting its characters grow into their own respective mm -hmm. three-dimensional people as both the creators and the actors have such tight grip on who these characters are, where they've been, and where they may be heading. Mm -hmm. um, everyone in the ensemble, including Jerry, um, it's now much more than a caricature. Yeah. And the show seems... To get that, as the character dynamics gets more complicated without ever straying too far away from, you know, the funny, irreverent, satirical, raunchy uh, episode of the week mm -hmm. that things that we know and love. Lah. So I think it's found its right balance finally in season six. Uh, what about you, Hadi? What do you think about this one? Um, yeah, I, I do agree with that. Uh, season five, I mean, felt like it was... Uh, uh, it was it was a very interesting way that they ended season five, right? And so I was thinking, what are they going to do with this whole season six thing? And it's just about, you know, uh, they, they're going on their separate adventures, but the overall arc of that whole portal gun thing. Mm -hmm. um, you're right. I think the characters are very fleshed out this time. Jerry becomes a very sympathetic character instead of, instead of this annoying character. I mean, he's still, punching back. he's still annoying as fuck. Yeah, he's still a punching yeah. back, but he's someone that we can, we can laugh at, but at the same time feel bad at laughing at him yeah too. you know, you, know like, yeah, yeah. You, you feel his pain nowadays even more uh yeah but anyway uh i would say that the introduction of space bath into the whole uh family, family dynamic, dynamic is yep. also interesting especially that episode between the baths mm. like that was an interesting experiment on like would you i think i would <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. So isn't this a isn't isn't this a low key Sylvie situation? It is. That, that yeah. was a, immediately that's what I was thinking about as well. So yeah. Uh, yeah. So kudos on the, the 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 writers again to to come up with a very innovative way of of of, of uh, showcasing the adventures of uh, Rick and Morty, uh, mm -hmm. but at the same time not forgetting to flesh out the the family dynamics. Uh, as well, uh, you know, like I felt that there was a lot of more family moments throughout this uh, series, just because also that you know Rick is kind of stuck there, lah. Yep, you know? yep. Um, I, think, I mean, episode six. I mean, apart from all the good stuff uh, from episode one to five, episode six with the dinosaurs was, was yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um I I think overall this has been this has been a really really re Solid. good return to form. Yeah. Uh for, for Rick and Morty. I'm, I'm actually giving half, right? this this is second half, so yeah. We're we're currently reviewing only the first half mm. of season six. Nice. Um and so far I liked what I've seen Same. and I think I'm gonna give it uh the highest rating I've given Rick and Morty since season three, mm -hmm. uh which is a seven point five out of ten. Alright, yeah, I I seven point five sounds fair. Yeah, definitely, yeah. man. 
Uh, next up, though, uh, let's move on to another sci-fi animated comedy. Hey. Uh, Lower Decks mm-hmm. uh, Season 3. Um, as we've discussed previously, uh, Lower Decks is both a beautiful love letter mm-hmm. and a ruthless parody of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. All of Star Trek, of which there canon. is... Yeah, I mean, all of Star Trek, of which there is a lot. Uh, there's a lot of Star Trek out there. Nice. Um, some of it is great. Some of it is bad. Some of it is weird. Some of it is fun. Some of it is silly. Some of it is profound. Um, there's just too much to wrap your head around. Sure. Uh, this animated series is made by hardcore Trekkies yeah, who have clearly seen every single second of the thousands of hours of the franchise yeah. because everything is referenced, even the deepest the cuts. The deep cuts are insane. Celebrating all that makes Star Trek good mm-hmm. and also good-naturedly poking fun at all the bad stuff in between. Um, season 3 finds the animated series set in the late next generation period uh, after the events of Star Trek Nemesis and it really hits its stride here, I feel. Uh, the jokes are funnier, the characters are continuously on point and the storytelling, which is certainly goofy, uh, but it's still very much in line with the basic tenets of Star Trek. Because as much as Lower Decks likes to make fun of Star Trek minutiae, mm-hmm. it is truly, madly, deeply in love with the canon of the franchise and what the franchise represents philosophically and morally. Um, what do you think about Season 3? Mm. Uh, the, story, the stories that are told were great. Uh, but what I really love again was the development of all the characters itself. Uh, I feel like Boimler has gone through quite a bit this season. Yeah. Uh, especially uh, culminating at the finale, I feel. Yeah. Um, uh, the relationships between all the cadets, I guess. Mm-hmm. And signs, lah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, again, is is the the heart and soul of this show, lah. Yeah. Uh, and. Man, I, I mean, I don't want to talk about the Easter eggs and all the the, the deep cuts because there's so many of them in every episode, mm-hmm. and like it makes sense for you to like go back and catch those episodes that they're referring to, yep. just so you have like a better understanding of what what I mean, not to have a better understanding, but uh, rather a uh, a more fleshed out idea of what's happening, lah. Mm-hmm. Because it's not like as if without that understanding, the 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 show is worse, you know. Yep. That it doesn't suffer from that. Like the Easter eggs and deep cuts is just for the trackies who have been around mm-hmm. for very long. Mm. You know? Uh so it's good, like it's if it's just an extra reward for you, lah, for loving Star Trek, you know? Yeah. Uh, but the story itself has so much heart, you know. Uh you really feel for for this crew just because of uh you know, they are never seen as the heroes, lah. Mm. However, among the other you know the the other lower decks, right around around Starfleet, they are gaining their reputation. You know, mm-hmm. so it's kind of fun to see that, like, oh, like other ships are talking about them. You know, like, yeah. and and but these are the guys that you will never talk about. You know, this is not your Kirk. This is not your, uh, your Picard. You know, this is not your Discovery. Right? They're not even Geordies. You know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so to have like uh, to have the episode, you know, when when the, the, that other California ship was around. And like yep. how they they were so like actually they were like uh fanboying uh, over Boimler and over uh Absolutely. you know it was so great to see because they deserve that reputation because of all the things that they went through la. you know mm. and and that's the kind of thing with uh, you know your 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 even though it's called Star Trek Star Trek Lower Decks and it's supposed to be focused on like the 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 weirder side of 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 the Federation right 
in the end, yep. it has that same kind of heart that all Star Trek uh, shows have, lah. Uh, yeah. which, which I really enjoy, and uh, yeah, I really love this series so far. Um, Especially wow. because they have straight away from that whole like trying to be Rick and Morty. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think right now it just functions in a very specific space, workplace comedy yes. inside the Star Trek universe, yes. which is something that Star Trek has never done before. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I mean, sure, you still have like cosmic entities running amok <laughs> or sensitive diplomatic negotiations yeah. with alien species, but it all intermingles with plots about clashing social circles mm-hmm. or intership rivalries mm-hmm. or even you know um, the topic of who gets to sleep in private rooms yeah. or who gets left in pu- uh, public bunks you know things like that mm-hmm. they they turn over rocks in a star trek universe that have never been turned over before <laughs> yeah. um, and the show's right on finds that careful balance uh, it does feel like being the lowest ranked person on the starship looks like it could be exhausting and painful mm-hmm. and boring but none of these characters would kind of trade it for anything else because in the end, I think they love it as much as we yeah. do. Um, as teased in the trailer, uh, this season returns, I think in its biggest episode mm-hmm. to Deep Space Nine, mm-hmm. uh, which is a nostalgia bomb for any Trek fan who desperately misses that show. Yeah, uh, this is some sort of Easter egg. Like, <laughs> Deep Space Nine is like right there <laughs> in the setting of, of an episode, you know. Um, however, the episode itself avoids making it all about the guest stars. Yes. I mean, yes, there are two Deep Space Nine cast members who return to voice their characters, mm-hmm. but it instead lets the station serve as the backdrop for a story focused on the core Lower Decks yes, cast. You know? There is nostalgia, there is Easter eggs, there are in-jokes, um, the hilariously specific references are all there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the crew of the Cerritos loves Deep Space Nine as much as the track fan yes. does, but that wasn't the point of the episode. Lower Decks is smart enough to know that we want to return to these locations and their incredible characters, but wise enough to integrate them into the existing show mm. organically. Mm. It's emblematic of what the entire show does so well, but there's another episode mm-hmm. that breaks format in a major way, oh. sidelining nearly every member of the main cast oh, to focus, yes. on a, focus on a minor supporting character and their increasingly strange adventure on an alien planet. Yeah, well. uh, spoiler alert, uh, the sentient, super selfish CPU um, computer box uh, named Peanut Hamper hey. from Season 1 is back and uh, she finds a life on a primitive planet of bird people mm-hmm. uh, who, ca- uh, you know, who, who she who she may learn the value of love and sacrifice yeah. and community. And they're Luddites, right? Because they, they reject yeah. technology, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, so, you know, by uh, finally uh, intermingling with these people, yeah. uh, she 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 <laughs> learns the value of sacrifice and community. Falling in love. Uh, or not, uh, LOL. <laughs> most um, the, the episode is a big swing. It is. It is, it, it is something that evokes, I'm going to say, um, a mix of Avatar and Wall-E, uh, more so than Star Trek. Um, and it sidelines comedy for large portions of mm. the story to mm. focus on painting a touching portrait of an alien world and those who inhabit it. Yep. It's yep. bold, it's weird, it's funny. Um, it's also very, very earnest. Mm. Um, it's a very, very big swing. I, I think it might hit hard for some people and it might miss hard for some people, but I appreciate that they're at a point where they can try stuff like this. Yeah. Uh, I think this is definitely a show produced by people who've been dreaming about star trek their entire lives you know they they want to be in star trek mm-hmm. they want the universe to be real and to these writers and directors and animators like even the worst job in starfleet is the dream come true yeah, I mean. and i think the show emphasizes that uh very wholesomely um yeah so um any last thoughts before you give your rating uh it's a must must watch for me yeah 
yeah, definitely. Um, I'm giving this a 7.5 out of 10 too. Yeah, I'll give it an 8. Yeah. Very nice. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the Lord of the Rings, oh. the Rings of Power. Oh uh, we go from one heavily hyped prequel series to a beloved fantasy epic to another. Uh, in fact, this Lord of the Rings prequel is built as the most expensive show in the history of TV. Yeah. Um, Amazon paid $250 million just for the rights mm-hmm. to Tolkien's world. Wait, now, wait, wait, and wait, the wait. Se- To the rights of the appendixes. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Just to be clear, that $250 million is not to the first age and the th- that means similar rain, no. No Lord of the Rings, it's just appendixes. Yep. And... The series reportedly cost $750 million just for season one. Yep. That is over a billion dollars. My God. Um, <laughs> people kept saying, like, God, Game of Thrones was expensive. Hot D was expensive. <laughs> Hot D and Game of Thrones is not 10% of this show's budget. <laughs> it's crazy. The only show that's ever kind of come close to this budget is Friends, weirdly enough. But yeah, that's because of the cups, salaries. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, the only company that could have afforded something like this is Amazon, because what is a billion dollars to Jeff Bezos? Yeah. Chum change. I told. I mean, I, I think I mentioned this before. You, Amazon Prime is unlike other uh, uh, other uh, streaming services. It's not required mm-hmm. to make money because it's never meant to be profitable. Amazon Prime, a, the video, it's a, yeah, is just meant to be a a service you get because you're an Amazon Prime subscriber. Mm. Yeah, so this is never meant to make money. Yes, uh, and similar to that, The Rings of Power was clearly a vanity project for Bezos who wanted his own Game of Thrones. Yeah. He is quoted in several you know, Wall Street Journal articles when Rings of Power came about, right? When it was first greenlit, he just said, I want my own Game of Thrones. That's it. That's the only reason it yeah. exists. Um, so what do you think were the results of all this money and, and everything? How was The Rings of Power season one? Fuck off, okay? <laughs> Because yeah. first of all, again, we are huge Lord of the Rings fans, okay? Sure. Uh, when I was a teenager, it was one of my favorite things to read. You know, I, I, it was my first thousand plus page book that I read. Like, it had so many memories for me because of the movies also as well, you know? The Fellowship, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the Fellowship, Two Towers and Without the King was such seminal movies at the time. And, mm-hmm. and, and really shaped my idea of fantasy and my idea of... Uh, uh, what to expect from a fantasy film, mm. you know, the, and and the book itself, you know, to, in detail to to language, you know, to to build this vast, big, uh, rounded world, right? Mm. And to see this, just, just, you know, fucked in the ass, you know, essentially, yeah. Uh, yeah. in this TV series is so frustrating. I wanted this to work, you know, because mm. this, because you know I'm such a huge fan, you know. I really wanted this to work, mm. but because you know it was it was second age. Second age had so many mysteries. There's so many gaps in the second age because you know Tolkien purposely left it vague because it's supposed to be mm. mythology. You know, mm. it's not like the Similarian and you know not like the Lord of the Rings. So this was mm. supposed to be this very mythologized mythologized time. You know, because there were yeah. the Numenorians, you know, there were the there were the dwarves and the elves at their nascent stages, you know. Or rather, mm. you know, going through this whole thing. So like the fact that it's just it suffers so much from from bad writing to bad acting to bad 
costume design to mm. to just sometimes it doesn't even make sense what is happening on screen you know mm. there are so many it's so disrespectful you know I feel like I hate this show like I've never hated a show as much mm. as Rings of Power mm-hmm. you know nothing even season 8 of Game of Thrones I don't hate as much as this show right you know this show I think Hidze told me this uh, of, uh, a few weeks ago mm-hmm. fan fiction but it's fan fiction yeah bad fan fiction because they have good fan fiction out there hey there's a lot of fan fiction that's better than the actual fan exactly. and this is not one of this them is not right yeah. This is like like a oh my god like you, you would I I cannot like, there's no nothing to compare it to it's just so badly done you know mm. to, to the trying to tie the stories in was so it was you know so brutally you know like there was no nuance at all you know from mm. you know having all these mystery boxes you know of Sauron you know of uh who are this uh who is Idar and all that stuff trying to figure out this you know like putting all these mystery boxes for no fucking reason. Right, right. You know, it's yeah. like, just, just fuck you lah. You know, why do you, I mean, okay, you just made it because like Jeff Bezos said, make it lah. You yep. Know? And the half, <laughs> the half foods fucking pissed me off so much. They're the worst people of the show. You know, mm. <laughs> they were going to abandon their, their friends, you know, to go and die. I'm, they seem like terrible what? people that should they go extinct. They were so terrible. I'm like, yeah. these are the bad guys, not the orcs. The fucking hobbits yeah. are the bad guys, you know? Yep. Oh, man, there's so many... Uh, this, there's so many problems. Everything that was... I mean, the only... Uh, I, 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 I'm just... I'm just dumbfounded. I have no... I literally have no good thing to say about this show. Um, Agreed with everything you just yeah. said. Um, I feel like... Your reaction to this, like like you said very early on in your review, right? Mm. Like a lot, all of us love Lord of the Rings or Tolkien's world. Yeah. Maybe to varying degrees. Probably Isa loves it the most, mm-hmm. and because of his tattoos and everything, yeah. his, you know, elfish tattoos and shit, you know. Uh, but a close second would be you, and maybe a distant third is me. But that's not because I don't love it. I like it a lot. Mm. I just don't love it as much as you. Sure. Do. To give you a proper comparison for for how I feel about the show and how Hardy feels about the mm-hmm. show, I hate the show. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> But but Hadi's reaction is more similar to my reaction to Star Trek Discovery. Ah, okay. Uh, something that I you I loved, yeah, loved yeah, yeah. I felt uh, I felt offended by, yeah, disrespected, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that type of thing, you yeah. know, like, like they spit on something that that I adore, okay. essentially. Yeah. yeah. Um. So while I hate the show just as much as the next guy, I don't think I'm as harsh on it as oh, Hadi so. because I'm just like. I had no material connection mm-hmm. or emotional connection or as deep as you did. So once it's uh, once I realized it wasn't getting good, I gave up on the show. So I, I stopped watching after episode four, four, four and a half. I, four and a half I had to finish it. There was no choice. I, I mean, it sounds weird, yep. but I had to finish it. Yeah. There was, I think there was a moment in episode five, like, uh, <laughs> I was just like, I think this is the point of no return. There's no, there's no, there's no coming back from it's this. It's so because like, you didn't like, watch the later episodes, right? Yeah. So you know when they introduced uh Mordor? Sure. Okay, so basically the the volcano erupted lah, okay? And then right, okay. the next episode the, it erupted in the, the, the last part of one of the episodes. And then mm. on the next episode is what happens after the eruption, lah, right? Mm. So then after they put it in the you know, like uh, the title card they put it Southlands. Right? Okay. And then they changed Southlands to Mordor. Oh wow. That was how they introduced Mordor. Oh wow! <laughs> Fuck you! 
this is a very like random uh, thing. Isn't Southland a cop show? Uh, Southland, yes, it's a cop show. Last time uh, with, yeah. with uh, our good Ben McKenzie. Correct, correct, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's that's what Mordor turned into yeah. Southland, the the TV show. Or rather, um, Southland turned into Mordor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like like season two of Southland suddenly it became Mordor. That would make more sense than the show, actually. I don't know. No, you got bright lah. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm rating this a three out of ten. What about you? Zero point five, motherfucker. Okay. I give it a five. You know why? Because I I I I actually didn't mind the fucking diversity higher. Sure. Okay. Um, I think I I will plus points for I think the people who worked on visual effects and things like that did a great job too. Okay, then I give it a one. Like on the on the technical side of things, yeah. you know what I mean, like sure. all the all the number crunches or on rich. like. Yeah, yeah, it looked like it was a billion dollars like, from yeah. the visual effects, the cinematographers, yeah. guys like that. You know, yeah. I think they did a great job, like. Yeah, I'm sorry, so. but just one more thing, okay? There was this okay. The second issue is also where the Numenorians were around. Numenorians okay. from Numenor, okay. Yeah, yeah. The, the, yep. the ancestors of Aragorn. Yep, yep, yep. And basically, all of Middle Earth, right? The Numenorians would have built great, like, um, great, uh, what do you call it? Uh, majestic, um, like Minas Tirith and all that, are built by them. Okay. You know? I mean, I know this is before, mm-hmm. but all these great, uh, what do you call these sites? Uh, this great. Tourist attractions, <laughs> yeah, right. Like Minas Tirith, like Hell's Deep, like uh, Weather yeah. Top, all these places in Middle Earth, they are littered with all these Numenorean uh, archaeological sites, lah. Okay. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you mean. Yep. Yep. So, and so we actually went to Numenor in this season, right? I saw. Yeah. And it was the most like, you know, you you expecting great stuff from Numenor, and I felt that Numenor just felt like any other fantasy city. Out mm. there, you know, and that yeah. was the thing. Like, if you wanted to go back to Numenor, you better really up the game, you know, to mm. something fantastical and something you know grandiose, grandiose that it made. You know, look at look at uh, House of the Dragon when we went to Dragon, you know, when they did the the the, the whole, like uh, uh, coronation of uh, Aegon, right? Oh, yeah, the sets, yeah. Yeah, look how there's a dragon, you know, uh, yeah, the great set and uh, whatever lah. Uh, yep. Yeah, look how grand that that looked. You know, even though it's like dark and dusty and shit like that, right? It still looked grand and big and like impressive. You know, mm. going to Nimuno didn't feel impressed impressive at all, mm. and that was something that like I just pissed me off. Like, I don't know, man. I I just I just want to see how. Uh, too bad Stephen Colbert can't really like express his true feelings because I really want to see him rant on this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's it. Whatever. Fuck this show, lah. Uh, one out of ten for you. Yeah, one out of uh, ten. Three out of ten for me. Uh, neither one of us is obviously recommending this. No. So, uh, give it a miss if you can. I know it's already been renewed for season two, right? Yeah, uh, it's confirmed for four seasons. Oh goddamn! Okay. Uh, so you'll be our resident review for this. Yeah, yeah. Season, I'm so. gonna have to watch this. No choice. It's your world. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, uh, let's move on to quick hits number one, where I'll be talking about some of the movies and TV shows that my co-host Hardy has not been able to see. Yep. Um, I'm going to begin with Lost as Spookies Season 2. Mm. Um, seeing as it's Halloween season, as I mentioned, there seems to be an abundance of horror-centric shows on TV right now. But the brilliantly bizarre HBO series Lost as Spookies might be the strangest 
and funniest of them all, um, ever since the first season of Los Spookies premiered in 2019, this Spanish-language series has become a steeper hit. Uh, it feels like an outlandish fever dream set in an unnamed Latin American country. Uh, created by Julio Torres, Anna Fabrega, and Fred Armisen, the show follows a group of millennial goth friends who turn their passion for horror into a business. How do you turn a passion for horror into a business? They stage fake supernatural events for clients who pay them. Uh. Fake hauntings, monster attacks, stuff like that are their stock and trade. Um, in the pilot episode in season one, uh, so that I, I, I don't want to spoil season two, so I'm going to give you the, the premise of the pilot episode from season one. Um, the team are hired by an older priest losing favor with his congregation because of a younger cleric with great hair and glossy lips. So he asked Lost Espookies to fake an exorcism to boost his reputation. Uh, so yeah, that's the type of thing. It's like a reverse Scooby-Doo. Uh, you're rooting for the people who are setting up the scares rather than the people who are solving it. But in the world of Lost Espookies, yeah. real supernatural phenomena also bump against <laughs> the, the handcrafted stuff that the group creates. You know, uh, For example, a member of Lost Espookies is possessed by a water demon uh, whose only goal uh, is to watch the 2010 Colin Firth film, The King's Speech. Oh. Um, that was her, her goal for possessing various hosts uh, <laughs> in season one. Uh, until she finally uh, possesses one of the Lost Spookies who watches the film for her and then they're watching it together, you know. Uh, the, in fact, the end of season one was that she was very disappointed when she watched it <laughs> and did not understand how it won an Oscar. Um, uh, in season two, having accomplished her goal, uh, the said water demon uh, abandons her parasitic ways uh, and decides that, you know, she's, been, she's done being a parasite for so long. So she wants to earn... Uh, a living, uh, and then she ends up as an unpaid intern in the U.S. Embassy. Uh, this is that type of show uh, yeah. where that type of thing can happen. Uh, so after a three-year hiatus due to the pandemic, it's such a joy to have lost Espookies' brand of off-kilter, oddball humor back on TV. Uh, amazingly, the show seems to have gotten even stranger and even funnier in its sophomore season. Uh, it picks up shortly after the events of the first season. Uh, the gang is once again up to their old tricks. Uh, though all different in comedic disposition, each character hits all the right notes to make for an ensemble unlike any out there. Uh, there is the more magician Ursula, um, there is the oblivious Tati, who is the star of the show, um, there's Andres, who is uh, quite arrogant, uh, and the uncertain Ronaldo, who is the leader of uh, Lost Spookies. But altogether, they've gotten very good at this horror gig. Uh, there's also the return of Tico, played by Fred Armisen, uh, as well as some other new faces who prove to be glorious surprises. Um, no gag goes to waste, and every additional horror creation they make remains sight-spitting spittingly funny it is as ridiculous as ever do it never coasts on what we've already seen because it keeps inventing new things it grows into something new all the time um the story this 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 go around uh kind of questions uh, surrounds a presidential election in this unnamed latin american city uh there is also ronaldo the leader of los espookies who is haunted by the ghost of the recent winner of a beauty pageant who was impaled by a stage prop mm. um tati who is one of the the show's most bizarre characters, discovers a talent for rewriting famous novels. So, Tati wants to become an author and she tries to find inspiration by listening to audiobooks, not realizing that audiobooks are based on real books. So, she is literally transcribing audiobooks uh, into novels no. and then selling them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really have to watch this show, man. 
like in uh, like she is the most oblivious character in season one. She does like the weirdest jobs. Like uh-huh. she in season one, she used to like manually turn a fan. Yeah, yeah. So she just turns it <laughs> by that's a job. Like she turns it for people. Uh, one of her one of her part time jobs is also that she turns the she turns the second hand of a clock tower. Oh no! <laughs> Things like that. <laughs> then what happens? Okay, never mind. So, yeah, so uh, nobody in this uh, unnamed Latin American city ever knows the time because it's always wrong. It <laughs> <laughs> is awesome. Yeah, uh, Tati is truly like a joy to behold. Uh. Um, um, without giving away what she gets up to this mm-hmm. season, each new path that she goes down arrives at the destination that proves to be funnier mm-hmm. than most other comedies out there and even the show was just built around Tati it'll be worth watching for her alone mm. but it's it's an ensemble piece and every character is given a lot to do um, it's uh, it, it can turn even the most simple of situations uh, very very funny uh, this is a, this is a top shelf comedy uh, the gang's horror gigs also remain a highlight in season 2 um, for example one of their clients uh, uh, is a very cranky teacher who hates that her, her classroom is always you know noisy, rude, etc. You know, yeah. uh, so she hires them to create uh, a friendly classroom monster who they discover in an egg. Like the class finds an egg, mm-hmm. and then they, they raise this classroom monster to adulthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when this classroom monster uh, goes to the toilet without telling the teacher, it dies. <gasps> yeah, <laughs> uh, sending the kids into like trauma, and then like they will never you know um, question the teacher ever again. Is that kind of thing? I guess that works. Uh, yeah, uh, they, they're also hired by an archaeologist uh-huh. uh, who wants to prove a, a pet theory of his that, uh, that all gay men throughout history have won a single earring uh, to, you know, uh, <laughs> demarcate who they are. Okay. Uh, but he's been denounced as homophobic, you know, stereotypical and all of that. Okay. So he, he, <laughs> he hires them to stage, uh, you know, um, mummies and corpses, you know, from ancient times who are all wearing like one little earring. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, but they, they are eventually found out at the end uh, because, you know, corpses don't have ears. He's yeah. uh, <laughs> rotted away. Yeah, I know. Um, so he should have known that as an archaeologist, so it was his fault. Um, but each new project illustrates how much can be accomplished on a low budget mm-hmm. uh, and with a little ingenuity, um, you know, both by the fictional loss at Spooky's characters and through the loss at Spooky's very real and very talented craftspeople behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Their unconventional plans are delightful to hear and the singular ex- execution of them is a treat to watch unfold. Mm. Um, perhaps the most joyful aspect of the show is its degree of surreality. Mm. The comedy is able to inject into the humdrum existences of the characters. You know, uh, One of the Lost and Spooky's members, Andres, has uh, friendly connections to celestial bodies. You know, he, He's friends with the moon and Saturn. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like that. Like for example, like when he loses, uh, when he loses a necklace, uh, in the street at night, he's able to talk to the moon to go full, so he can find his uh thing. You know, um, Tati is able to parlay her her book transcriptions into a successful career once she starts selling them to Hollywood for adaptations. Uh, but she's selling them for the cost of a breakfast. Oh. So, yeah. Uh, they were offering her millions. Uh, all she wanted was breakfast when she goes to the meeting. So she didn't end up making much from these uh, book adaptations. Um, yeah, um, a lot of the stuff is great here. Like, with It has a, a great idiosyncratic comedic voice. Mm. Uh, it's unforgettably gonzo in its vibe. It's exactly the kind of deliriously ludicrous and totally unique show that stands out amidst a sea of 
homogeneous streaming content these days. Uh, this one's a 9.5 out of 10 for me, man. Okay. Very, very highly rated. Nice. Uh, next up, I'm going to be talking about Wendell and Wilde. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know who Henry Selick is? Henry Selick. Who's that? Henry Selick is a bit of a legend in the stop stop motion animation genre. Mm-hmm. His previous films are James and the Giant Peach, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Coraline. Um, I'm sure you've seen at least one of them, right? Uh, yes, Coraline. Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas is also, also very famous. Yeah. Yeah, and they've all had, uh, set such a high bar. Uh, but his latest film, Wender and Wild, is the much-hyped collaboration between Henry Selick, the stop-motion director, alongside Jordan Peele, oh. who re-themes with uh, Michael Key. So Key and Peele oh. wrote the film uh, directed by Henry Selick. Um, you know, both uh, these two groups of filmmakers have very different styles, but they're able to blend them together beautifully. Uh, Wendell and Wild is grim, and vibrant and weird while also being poignant and stylish and funny. Mm-hmm. Everything you could want from a PG-13 horror movie for kids, you know. Mm. Um, there's a lot to love about Wonder and Wild. This is exactly the kind of kid-friendly, family-friendly film that entertains grown-ups as much as it does younger viewers. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the downside, the Wonder and Wild suffers from feeling a bit too rushed and a little bit convoluted. Um. Um, a bit too many elements at work here and it doesn't all come together at the end. Uh, because there's not enough time in an in a ninety minute you know short story like this to fully flesh out each character, so I wish they had pared down stuff a bit. Uh, that being said, though, I really really liked Wonder and Wild in terms of animation, in terms of representation of its trans and trans and indigenous characters, and in terms of its social commentary. Okay. Uh, it's a spooky, suspenseful, fun, very much in the in the in line with Coraline or The Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, so yeah, this is a seven point ten, uh, seven out of ten for me. All right. Um, it's available on Netflix uh, this coming week uh, around. Actually, no, la, you've already you've probably already seen this by the time this episode is out. So yeah, mm. um, it's out on Netflix. Finally, for this part of... Uh, oh, not finally. Uh, two more to go. I'm going to be talking about Werewolf by Night next. Have you seen Werewolf by Night, Hadi? I have not, sadly. Can you tell me what happens? I mean, I know it's a sure. comic book. I've... Uh well yeah it's also a one off Marvel feature yeah. um with no with no ties to larger MCU and it's only about fifty minutes long. Oh okay, what's it about? A werewolf. Yeah. Uh, so essentially, um, so the MCU is bucking its superhero tradition by airing a fun old school monster movie homage. Nice. Uh, and it's uh werewolf by night. The story is that uh Bloodstone, who is a famous a monster hunter and a leader of a guild of fellow hunters has just died. Oh, no. That means there's a new job opening to be a monster hunter head honcho, I guess. Okay. Uh, so a team of hunters has gathered at the Bloodstone compound um, for a competition. Uh, whoever is able to hunt and kill a captured monster on the compound will become their new leader. Uh, and oh yeah, the hunters are also free to hunt each other oh, wow. to eliminate the competition. Okay, okay. So, the competition is hosted by Bloodstone's widow, uh, absolutely delightful, uh, played by a woman named Harriet Sampson uh, Harris, uh, who's perhaps the best part of the whole special. Uh, so the competition has brought together several characters, including two unlikely additions. Uh, one is Jack, played by Gael Garcia Bernal, who seems way too nice and polite when compared to the other hunters. Then there is Laura Donnelly, who is Elsa Bloodstone, uh, Bloodstone's estranged daughter who hates her family tradition and wants to ruin this whole uh, hunt thing. Okay. Uh, so what beastie is being hunted? Is it the titular werewolf or is it something else? It's actually not the werewolf. Uh, I won't tell you since the special plays it as a mystery, okay. but when the werewolf does show up, I was ecstatic to see that it was an actor wearing makeup. Um, oh. So many modern werewolves are CGI yeah. and they look awful. 
So kudos for bringing back practical werewolves. Uh, the movie is directed by legendary composer Michael Giacchino. This is his first directing effort. Um, and he stylishly invokes classic universal, universal monster movies. You know, the black and white cinematography, the fake cigarette burns on, on the sides of the reels, you know, to signify real changes. Mm-hmm. Um, the black and white cinematography lends the entire endeavor a moody atmospheric vibe. Uh, there's one particular scene where the werewolf is eliminated by bursts of light and it looks wonderful. Uh, it's nothing too deep or profound or too emotional, but as a slice of like popcorn Halloween entertainment, man, this was, was this was really, really fun. So I'm giving this a 7 out of 10 as well. Okay, wow. Finally, I'm going to be talking about Star Wars Tales of the Jedi, Ooh. something that I think Hardy will be very interested yeah. in when it, when it comes out in two days' time, mm-hmm. as of this recording. Uh, Star Wars Tales of the Jedi is a series of animated shorts that explore the lives of Jedi from the prequel era. Uh, it totals six episodes, but it's split into two parts. So one half follows the fall of Count Dooku as he becomes uh, the Sith Lord Darth Tyrannus. Mm-hmm. And the second half follows the early life of Ahsoka Tano, long before she becomes uh, Anakin's Padawan. Mm. Uh, all in all, Tales of the Jedi brings an emotional blast to the past that fills in some very exciting blanks in the prequel trilogy. Um, it is short enough to make an easy watch while providing many intriguing new details about two key players from both sides of the Force. The show is a joy to watch, and it's also a wonderful companion piece to fans of the Clone Wars. Yeah. Um, it's got some really fun stuff, but it gets quite dark when it needs to be. Um, it has appearances from familiar faces uh, from the animated series, if you're a fan. There's a lot of new layered stories, and it allows for some interesting world building. It crafts two beautiful character-driven stories mm-hmm. over long periods of time. As in, like, the episodes are not long, but the, the duration of the... What do you call it? Like, the era spanning is long, you know, it's... Like Dooku's story, he spends uh-huh. his entire life, for example. Um, so yeah, uh, it, it just works. The dual stories of Ahsoka and Dooku blend well, and it gives you two perspectives of the Jedi Order uh, alongside uh, some insight about what it means to either be a Sith mm-hmm. or, uh, or a Jedi. Uh, Dooku's story was great uh, in particular, I think. Uh, I didn't know what to expect, but uh, Dave Filoni knows, sure knows what to give the, what to give the fans. Cool. Um, the three episodes give you context for a lot of events of the films and takes a deeper look into the motives and the psyche of Dooku. Uh, and then comes the Ahsoka splurge. Like, I think like many people in, in recent years, uh, she's, I know many of you, many of yours favorite characters in the history of Star Wars. She's one of mine too as yeah. well. And seeing her past was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anyone loves the character as much as I do, you will not be disappointed. It is so cool to see animated Ahsoka back in action. Uh, and she is just as badass as ever. Uh, there's even you know a showdown for an Inquisitor at one point, which is a great sequence. Nice. Uh, the show format has seriously great potential in terms of storytelling, and it opens the door to hearing much earlier stories from many great Star Wars characters. You know, like like let's go even earlier than the prequel era. Let's go even further yeah. than Rise of Skywalker. You know, like there's so many one-off anthology things that the show can do. Yeah. Um, don't miss it. Is is my review for it nice. basically? Uh, eight out of ten for me. Wow, yeah. that's a good ass rating, man. Hey, I mean, we, we, we love Dave Filoni's uh, animated uh, Star Wars stuff, yeah, yeah. and this one is no exception to nice. it. He always delivers, always delivers. Yeah. Uh, this is probably going to be the best thing in the Star Wars world up until, I think, mm-hmm. Mando Season 3 comes back next year, or the, or the Ahsoka show comes yeah. uh, in February. Uh, I am loving Endor, though. You know, uh, you, Do you have any like preliminary thoughts on Endor now that we're halfway through the show? Um, Endor is great so far, man. Um, I mean, I know you had a bit of misgivings at the beginning of it, but 
Eh, I've come around. Yeah, um, great character development because, you know, we just know Endor from, you know, the, uh, what? Rogue One. The Rogue One, you know, and that was a very short period of time. Uh, so yeah, to to see his character really fleshed out, to see his motivations and all that slowly growing as the episodes go by, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of cute, kind of cute, huh? uh, kind of great to see. And also, this is the side of Star Wars that is rarely explored. So Absolutely. I really like it, like uh, especially you know what's happening in the Senate. Which you can you can kind of uh, get a glimpse of that through uh, uh, Mon Mm-hmm. Um yeah, you know, and um. The whole, and this is another glimpse of the birth of the rebellion. Also, I mean, we can't also yeah. yeah sorry. Also, the, the the dirtiness of the rebellion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, revolution revolutions are never clean. Yeah, we saw a bit of that with Saw Gerrera in Rebels and stuff. Yeah, like that. but but this is our first real glimpse right. into the the more the extreme side. side of the rebellion. Yeah, yeah. You know, the darker side, the more like the side, like like things like uh, we need money, so yeah, we're going to yeah. rob this place. You know, yeah, that kind of yeah. thing, like, which which is so unlike the, the rebellion ideal, right? But that's the mm-hmm. thing, to fund a rebellion, you need to do dirty things. Lah. You yep. know, and, that's how, and you know, you need to do things where, to the detriment of the people, because you need the people to rise up. Sometimes, you yeah, know? absolutely. You know, and, yeah. and that was something that, that I think was brilliantly done with the, the Imperial officer, because she kind of mm. could tell what was happening, but nobody listened to her. Mm. Yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more in depth yeah, about yeah. this next month. Like, yeah, when definitely. We talk about yeah. That but I kind of think so. I like that kind of like uh, imperial politics. I like I kind of like uh, the exploration mm. of Star Wars away from the the Jedi Order, away from the Skywalker story. Mm. You know, just something different. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Um. This is gonna sound shocking to a lot of people, sure. but my two favorite characters in the show are actually Imperials. Uh, sure. my number one favorite character is that woman you're pointing out, yeah. of a, of a, very, of a very smart intelligence ISB officer mm-hmm. who's kind of figuring this out, mm-hmm. um, and also the real tryhard dude from the corporation security. Yeah. I want to see what happens to him. Here's a so far quite an interesting story arc. Yeah, like I, I find myself very intrigued by him because he's so relatable. He's just a guy who wants to do well, and he thinks you know he's doing. Yeah, he's not. What's he's best. not good or bad. You know, he's just doing his job. And it really goes to show that if the Empire kind of listened more to these people, like, it might have actually been successful. Yeah, it might have lasted more than 18 years. Yeah, right? You know? Mm-hmm. You, you have, but, like, every, like, capitalist evil system is, like, bogged down by bureaucracy, you know? Yeah. I, w- I would like to watch, like, a, a version of, like, The Wire that just follows people like this oh. who, who are just trying to hunt down rebels, but red tape keeps dragging them down, you know? <laughs> that was what, uh, I think, was it Rangers of the Republic or something? The cancel Right, thing? right, right. Yeah. yeah, 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 because of Gina Carano, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, uh, let's move on to the only uh big screen cool. offering Finally. this month. Uh, for I guess the millions yeah. and uh, millions of DCEU fans still around, um, Black Adam is in cinemas. He's being played by Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Uh-huh. Uh, what do you think about the DCEU's latest attempt to revive its franchise, uh, Black Adam? This was fun. Alright, okay. Black Adam wasn't the disappointment that I thought it was gonna be. Okay. Like just because you know the delays and the you know like the a lot of uncertainty before the the actual uh production and all that, like, remember? Sure, but, sure, yeah, 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 yeah. So I have to say, hey, it was fun. Um, it doesn't do anything new or you know, I mean, apart from you know the rock killing people, like, mm-hmm. this is the rock's most brutal um character he has ever played, like. Right, right, right. Just open 
he's fighting against. Uh. Um, mm-hmm. But what is great is I feel that the, the relationship between him and the introduction of the GSA, uh, JSA, JSA, right? Justice Society, yeah. sure. Uh, Justice Society and you know the and 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 Black Adam kind of have this weird. Um, I feel very well done um, relationship. Uh. Okay. You know, um, I enjoy the portrayal of most of the characters. Uh, okay. The first two acts were my favorite part. Okay. Uh, the third act I felt was a bit unnecessary, but then you know that's the the kind of like the formulaic uh, thing, right? Where you have the big bad at the end, right? Mm. Yeah, so that I felt a bit like I didn't really have to have the third act, like all right, could have just uh, done with like him getting imprisoned and all that, and end the movie there. Mm, you know, okay, uh, that would make it a better movie, I feel. Um, mm, okay. However, um, yeah, uh, yeah, it wasn't disappointing for me. Uh, I felt all his uh, it lived up to my expectations, and I had a lot of fun watching this. Mm. So, yeah, that's about it. All right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about spoiler alert here? Sure. Um, a little bit about the post-credit scene. That oh shit! Yeah, about. sorry. Um, so I I've read that it features Superman. So what what's it all about? Can you tell me about? So it? basically, okay. This so oh you haven't watched it there. Uh, I walked out after about half an hour. You motherfucker. Yeah. So <laughs> I, 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 I didn't stick around for the post-credit. I thought I could just like torrent it later or whatever. It was awesome. Okay, never mind. Anyway, uh, the post-credit scene was very simple. Uh, mm-hmm. it was just uh basically uh, Amanda Waller, you know, coming in like a, a a drone came in front of Black Adam and then uh, Amanda Waller is like t- telling him like you know congratulations now uh Kando Kan is your prison lah. Ah okay. You know and uh you you uh, if you ever step foot out of uh Kandak, you know um I will have to send someone not from this earth lah to. Uh. To challenge you, and then, so you think that will be the end of it? Like it's just a hint that she will ask Superman to come, right? Right. And so after, uh, then he said, then he said, bring it, lah, you know, mm. like as a rock dust, lah, you know. Yeah. And then, uh, as the hologram uh goes away, you see this silhouette of this figure flying down, and then it's revealed, Henry Cavill is Superman again, lah. Mm. Yeah. So that's. Teasing a showdown between Black Adam and Superman. Uh, I don't think it's a showdown because I think it's just Superman giving him a warning. Alright. That bro, I can take you on. <laughs> mm, his weakness is magic though, so I don't think he can. Uh, His weakness is magic. What do you mean? Superman? Superman, oh, yeah, 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 Superman yeah, yeah. Is, is, is famously famous like, vulnerable yeah. to two things, like, kryptonite magic, and magic. Yeah. So we'll see yeah. where this goes. Because Shazam was quite a... I mean, the comics was quite hard for him to take down Shazam even. Yep, yeah, yep. and this is like a more brutal Shazam, you know. Mm. Uh, yeah. So wait, why why did you walk out? Uh, I thought it was a terrible film. Um, I I would I would have rated it. I, I can't rate it. I have only watched half the film, so mm. I probably withhold a rating. But from what I've seen of the first half of the film, mm-hmm. it was probably a, like a one or two out of ten. What? I was very bored by it. Uh, so I just decided to walk out. Uh, how would you rate it? I'm giving it a seven out of ten. <laughs> Okay, cool. Cool. Difference of opinion. Yeah, I know. But I mean, it's just... Okay, to be fair, I really love The Rock. So, okay. I might be biased just because, you know, The Rock is the main man here. Mm. But really, honestly, I really had fun with it. You know, the whole, like, his... Uh, I feel that it is nothing... It's very formulaic in the end, at the end of it, right? Mm, it's just yep, that yep, the yep. twist is that he kills people, 
Oh, okay. But that's very DCEU. Like. Even Batman kills people. Exactly. That's what I was going to say also. Like, Batman has... We have seen Batman kill people. We have seen Superman yeah. kill people. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what's new? <laughs> what, what, what makes him more of an anti-hero than the actual heroes we already have? <laughs> because now they accidentally kill the people sometimes. I don't know. But... Um, I don't know. I don't know. No, 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 Batman... he, no, no, Superman, like, totally, like, just twisted <laughs> Zod's head. <laughs> Batman was shooting guns. <laughs> shooting guns, you're right, you're right. Uh, <laughs> quote unquote, accidentally killing yeah. people. Maybe that's what they found in the police reports. Lah, but did, that's you, not did you, what you stay until like, when the JSA were, uh, arrived and all that? Uh, a little bit. Lah. Um, I think I just like gave up during that point, I remember. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I do, I, I, I'm not like super. I, I've kind of fallen out of love with the superhero genre. It's very difficult for superhero stuff to keep my interest yeah, yeah. these days. I understand. Yeah. It, yeah. Um. Anyways, okay. A uh, good review for Black Adam, and I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Um. I hope one of these days we get to see The Rock and John Cena team up on screen. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, me too. Yeah, definitely. That that will be a really really fun. They kind of uh, hinted at it because like one of the characters from Peacemaker, you know the, uh, the hot girl that he flirts with. Sure. Uh, part of the Amanda Waller crew. Yeah. Right? So she appeared in the film. Ah, I see. Okay. Okay. Woman of uh, Black Adam. Ah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, I also know that like uh, Dave Batista is following James Gunn, whatever he does, and James Gunn is very involved in the DCEU these days. Yeah. So you might see like Batista on screen like, too. That would be fun. Imagine Batista, yeah. The Rock, and John Cena. Yeah, yeah. They they got to promote like whatever film that these three are in with a Mania match. They, like, they have, have to. Do that. And you know what? I don't even watch it. I'll give it a ten out of ten. Yeah, sure. Yeah, just 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 yeah. Just why not? Right? Why not? <laughs> Yes, yeah, sometimes you don't need a story, you just I mean, need the headliners. And on that billing, I mean, yeah, sure, why not? I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll watch that movie and that mania, even if it's just part-timers. You know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, uh, so now mm. up to Quick Hits 2. Uh, so the first thing I'm going to be talking about on Quick Hits is The Midnight Club, which is by Mike Flanagan. Mm. Uh, Mike Flanagan, as you know from Haunting of Hill House, uh, Midnight Mass, oh. um, Haunting of Bly Manor, Doctor Sleep, etc., is a very sentimental storyteller. Um, he is as st- sentimental about storytelling as he is about horror, for better and sometimes for worse. Uh, this has led to a very unique heartbeat in his in his work. There's like you know this aching pain uh, that you can find in the haunting of Hill House, or his dedication to making us see the demons in the Shining in a different light with Doctor Sleep. He is an excellent storyteller that uses horror. Not to scare you, but to tug at your heart heartstrings. Mm. Um, that's why it seems that Mike Flanagan would be a great fit for this show, which is adapted from Christopher Pike's 1994 novel of the same name. Uh, it follows a group of 90s-era college-age teenagers who live in a hospice for terminally ill youths. Um, so the hospice has a very simple mission, to provide a space for the dying to transition on their own terms, meaning helping each patient appreciate life again rather than spending their final days terrified of death. But the kids have a secret ambition. Uh, they have a plan in this group, in the Midnight Club. Whoever dies first uh-huh. will give the remaining Midnight Club members some sort of sign from beyond to prove that it exists, to prove to the group that the end isn't really the end after all. So, like all of Flanagan's previous programs, the Midnight Club re-examines and subverts horror tropes standard to a show involving haunted houses and cults and death looking at every corner. Uh, so instead of watching patients get picked off one by one by some supernatural villain, <laughs> uh, 
um, the series invests its characters in emotional perils. Mm. Uh, by now, prospective viewers should be familiar with Flanagan's brand of horror, more moody than menacing, more gracious than gory. Uh, but even for established fans, his latest is his, in my opinion, mm-hmm. least successful in terms Aww. of marrying admirable ambitions with entertaining story. Okay. The Midnight Club aspires to change the conversation around death, uh, but such a heady uh, and necessary, you know, I guess conversation uh, and ideas aren't necessarily well embodied by what quickly devolves into a cheesy, scattered, and frustrating tale. Uh, Flanagan leans so heavily on gooey and preachy melodrama while going so light on scares or even resolutions to his central mysteries, that I think this latest show by Mike Flanagan is a dud. Uh, his first ever, I oh, think. No. Uh, it's a 4 out of 10 for me. That's sad. Uh, what is not a dud, though, is Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. Oh, yeah. How did this go? Uh, it is produced and hosted by the Oscar-winning filmmaker. Uh-huh. Uh, Cabinet of Curiosities is an anthology collection of live-action horror films nice. Uh, released just in time for Halloween. Mm. Uh, it ranges from the macabre to the magical, from the gothic to the grotesque, or sometimes even just classically creepy stories. Uh, altogether, there are eight sinister tales, including two original stories by Del Toro, uh, and they were brought to life by a team of writers and directors personally chosen, handpicked by Del Toro. So it features weird and uncanny standalone stories from Jennifer Kent, who was the writer-director of The Babadook. Mm. Um, it has a standalone story from Panos Kosmatos, who okay. was the writer-director of Mandy. Um, there is a standalone story from Vincenzo Natali, who is the writer-director of Cube, uh, and a standalone one from Anna Lily Amenpour, who is the writer-director of the Iranian vampire film uh, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, uh-huh. uh, and so many more great filmmakers. So it's a very veritable smorgasbord of uh, dark delights I think and he has something for every type of horror fan um, there is the claustrophobic and nauseating battle between grave robber and a vermin in Graveyard Yet there is uh, Tim Blake Nelson uh, having a terrifying subterranean adventure in Lot 36 mm-hmm. uh, this show is the perfect treat for Halloween season I think naturally like all anthologies the quality may vary but at its best, Cabinet of Curiosities is an excellent way to spend your time. My favorite is Anna Lily Amirpour's uh, installment, The Outside. Uh, it is based off on a short story by comics author Emily Carroll and this horror comedy take on the insecurities of a young woman uh, in a nondescript suburban neighborhood, in my opinion, is a knockout. Uh, I won't spoil the details because the magic of the episodes, and indeed all the episodes, are about the unfolding of it. Think okay. of it like a Twilight nice. Zone. You don't want to know the premise. You just want to you know, watch it unfold. Got it. Exactly. Got it. Yeah, um, it's, it's very, very good. And 8 out of 10. Nice. Okay. Uh, finally, down to the last two, I'm going to be talking about Halloween Ends mm-hmm. now. Um, after 44 years, the saga of Laurie Strode and Michael Meyer fi- finally concludes. Um, or so we are supposed to believe it does, I guess, with Halloween Ends. Uh, this film wraps up the trilogy of movies that began in 2018 when David Gordon Green uh, rebooted the franchise. Uh, this finale marks a significant improvement uh, over the cartoonish political commentary and the dim-witted characterizations of uh, 2021's Halloween Kills. Uh-huh. But just because it's an improvement doesn't mean it's also good. Yeah. Um, this is not good at oh. all. Halloween ends lacks a central logic and spends an inordinate amount of time on things that fail to matter. Um, and I also think it sounds naive that Halloween ends is marketing itself as the end of the Halloween franchise because 
I mean, come on, lah. This is Hollywood, no, right? No. And they like to reboot everything every like one or two mm. years, you know. Um, hopefully, this IP does stay dead, though, because even despite Jamie Lee Curtis giving it her all, the Halloween franchise is definitely out of gas because this one was tedious, joyless, and convoluted. Um, a one out of ten for me. Oh wow, that's sad. Yeah, yeah. If you do recall, I gave Halloween Kills a zero out of ten, so this was an improvement. Um, I wasn't lying about that one. <laughs> uh, finally, I'll be talking about Hellraiser, which is a reboot of Clive Barker's uh stylish, artistic, uh, gooey, kind of kinky horror uh picture, um, adapted from his own novella, The Hellbound The Hellbound Heart. Uh, this film became a big hit and introduces and introduced audiences to the Cenobites, which are Have you seen Hellraiser? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's not the new one. Okay, yeah, but but you know the premise, yes, right? The yes. Cenobites, this this group of like S N M creatures, yep, yep. you know, um, stuff like that. Um, so this one is um, uh, sort of reboot slash sequel oh, okay. to it. Um, as we all know, um, there are ten films in the Hellraiser franchise, um, and each one is worse than the last. Um, it was it became quite dire like, by by film ten, you know, like it became. Really, uh, diminishing returns. Every film was worse than the previous one. Then the next one was worse. Then the next one was worse. Then the next one was worse. You know, mm-hmm. um, the series regressed. You know, uh, and then Pinhead became something cool. Became went from something cool and scary into like more of a Freddy Krueger style slasher, kind of spouting one-liners and stalking people, mm-hmm. just like any common serial killer. Uh, so over the years, as the franchise grew worse, there was plenty to talk about. You know, a potential remake or reboot or reimagining or whatever you want to call it. Wow. Now that it's happened on Hulu, uh, Pinhead is back. Is she's played by Jamie Clayton, the first ever female Pinhead. Uh-huh. Uh Which is kind of like pointless. Like, what is the point of a female female Pinhead? There is no, you know, it, like I, a female Pinhead. La. Sure. Uh, that's it. You know, um, I, Hellraiser twenty twenty two. It feels very very lacking, and not for lack of trying. Oh. Uh, Pinhead and the new Cenobites here are effectively scary and strange. They all have slick new designs, but the film is so murky and dark that uh, you might need to boost your TV brightness. Uh, it was like that one episode of uh, Game of Thrones, you know, the big battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you just imagine that for like two hours, um, or even you know that Hot D episode where they were on um, Driftmark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So the real issue, however, is that it all kind of feels generic. Um, I don't even love Barker's original film that much, but it felt different. Like Barker was never the best filmmaker, but he knew how to create an otherworldly atmosphere that's stuck in your brain. I can't say the same for what's going on here. Uh, on top of that, there is the inherent kinkiness built into the series is is kind of completely gone. Um, sure, there are sex scenes, but they're all fairly vanilla. Okay. Um, Hellraiser twenty twenty two is the best the franchise has been in a long while since the first one. Is the best of the of the ten movies that came from the first Hellraiser, mm. but that's not saying much. It's only a five out of ten film. Okay, five out of ten. Yeah, uh, that wraps it up for this edition of Genre Equality. We will be back next month to talk about one of the most fun shows on FX, yeah. Timothy Olyphant's Justified. Justified. Uh, yeah, we'll talk all about that show uh, middle of next month. Plus, Genre Equality sixty has a lot of big topics as well, oh, including yeah. as we mentioned earlier, Sagan. Genre quality is five years old. Five years old, yeah, exactly. Um, and we'll be talking about a bunch of big things hmm. next next month. Nice. Wakanda Forever is probably the biggest thing we'll be talking about. Yeah. Black Panther. Uh, we'll be talking about Andor. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, in quick hits, I'll be talking about Interview with the Vampire, uh, the latest TV adaptation of Anne Rice's novels, uh, in, and as well as Let the Right One In, mm-hmm. which is another TV adaptation of the Swedish vampire film, Let the Right One In. Uh, so a lot of vampire stuff coming up. So they were all released during Halloween, yeah. so you know why they're all here, you know. Exactly. Um, the, the, film, the showrunners behind Dark are back with another German sci-fi series uh-huh. called 1899. Don't know what it is, but I'm eager to check it out. Um, we'll be talking about the sequel to Enchanted called Disenchanted, where Amy, where a- they've brought back Amy Adams as your titular princess. Nice. Um, we'll also be talking about Wednesday, which is the latest Netflix TV adaptation of the Adams mm-hmm. Family. This time, following Wednesday, Jenna Ortega's Wednesday, Wednesday Adams. Um, Hardy will be talking about a local production mm-hmm. uh, based on a series of Goosebumps type books uh, novels books yeah um by do you know by who is by uh, who wrote mr midnight yeah mr midnight lah. oh okay yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. No, no, it's uh, jim atchison jim atchison midnight okay yeah, <laughs> yeah. his last name is midnight uh, anyways this is a netflix adaptation of a local book series so that proves to be quite interesting and i've not also seen... james lee uh, isn't F the isn't the first name uh, an alias for the second I name? Think so. like they're the same person right yeah the same person Right, okay, okay. Um, finally, right at the end, uh, I'm back with Quick Hits Classics, this time with another cult classic space opera, Farscape. Oh, so, I'll be helping you out with that one. Hey, okay, okay, awesome, yeah. awesome. So Hadi joins in on Farscape as well. So uh, I'm, I'm most eager to talk about uh, Wakanda Forever. What about you? Man? Oh man, yeah, Black Panther. I mean, this is post the death of our original Black Panther. Chadwick Boseman. Yeah, yeah, so then... The ch- Oh man, it's going to be an interesting one. Plus the introduction of Riri Williams and all that. So, a lot to look forward to. The introduction of Namor too. Oh yeah, Namor. A really cool looking Namor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, great stuff, man. I've, I think, in my opinion, Ryan Coogler has never made a bad film. Not yet. Has never, has never made a bad anything. Mm-hmm. He's never done anything, in my opinion, like it's like less than 8 out of 10. Agreed. Think of, think of Creed. Think of Black Panther. Think of Footville Station. Mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. All, the, all the other stuff that he's made. Ryan Coogler is amazing and I have not lost faith in him yet. Yep. Uh, yeah, so yeah, we, we're psyched to watch Black Panther and talk about it next month. Uh, Till next time though, this has been Hit Zero. I'm Hardy. Goodbye, guys. Goodbye.